Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Well, welcome to Easter at One Church Seal. We are glad that you're here today. We're in the middle of a series, a short series called Power Dynamics. And on Good Friday, or on Palm Sunday last week, we looked at the abuse of power, and we looked at a character named Herod the Great. And then on Easter, or Good Friday, uh, Pastor Jessica, a great message on the misuse of power, and we looked at the high priest Caiaphas. Today, we're going to look at the right use of power, and we're going to look at Jesus. You know, it's interesting, when I was preparing this series on power, I googled the most powerful people in the world in human history, and Google kept spinning back to me the 100 most influential people in human history, and it caught my interest. So I clicked the link and I went on it and it started at 100 and you'd scroll down and I thought, surely, surely Jesus is on the 100 top most influential people in human history. And as I went down that list, notable people, I kept going down that list, no Jesus, and I got to number one and guess what? They got it right. There was the name above every other name. There was the name that the Bible says that at his name, every knee would bow and everyone would confess that Jesus Christ is king. Now, you know what's interesting about that is if you know the circumstances of Jesus' life, he has no business being on the top 100 influential people in human history. His circumstances lent nothing to be, there was nothing impressive about them. He was born in abject poverty. His family was poor. If you're struggling to make ends meet, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Jesus not only was that, Jesus never went to college. He didn't have some impressive degrees that somehow makes people noteworthy in society and culture. He lived in a small, insignificant town. He never traveled further than 200 kilometers from where he was born. He wasn't even well-traveled. You know, Jesus didn't have a title or a position that he could put on his resume. You know, nothing like that. Jesus worked much of his life alone as a carpenter, a tradesman. You know, Jesus had a pretty short ministry. It wasn't even the legacy. Sometimes people are known for their influence and significance because they they served for so long. It was three short years of ministry. He didn't have thousands of Instagram followers. He didn't have a YouTube channel. He wasn't TikTok famous. He didn't even have a podcast. In fact, When he was 33 years old, the crowds that have flocked to him began to turn on him. And his followers, they abandoned him. He was arrested. He was illegally tried. He was sentenced to death. And that would be the end of his life. He was nailed to a tree. He was hung naked between two thieves as he watched soldiers gamble for his one garment of clothing he probably owned. Friends, that should have been the end of Jesus. Jesus shouldn't even, based on those circumstances alone, shouldn't even be a footnote in human history. His body was laid in a borrowed grave. He was buried along with the hopes of his followers. But 
Luke chapter 24 says this. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. They found that a stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men asked them, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Alive. So today we celebrate that Jesus broke the grave. And in breaking the grave, he broke the curse of sin. And in breaking the curse of sin, he broke the grip of fear. And in doing so, he broke the power of death. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, talk about power. That's the greatest flex in human history. It's like a robber inviting you into his home because he's going to rob you. And you turn the tables and you rob him. Death welcomed Jesus into its home to end him. And Jesus flexed and ended death. I mean, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. This is what we're singing about. This is what we're celebrating here. And I want to help us see two things today. I'm going to explore how powerful Jesus was, and I'm going to show you how he used that power. And in order to show you how powerful he was, I'm going to go to a story in the Gospels found in Mark chapter 4 that if you grew up in Sunday school, you've been around church, you know it, you've heard it, it's a little familiar. And if you didn't, don't worry, I'm going to tell it to you. This is how it goes in Luke chapter 4. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And this is a part of the story I often forget. I think it's just Jesus and his disciples. But there's a whole entourage following Jesus. You know, he, there's just people always trying to hang off Jesus here. There's lots of boats on the water at this point. And then it says, a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Friends, if you want to see real power, you got to look beyond Herod the Great or Caiaphas or Caesar Augustus. you got to take a hard look of Jesus of Nazareth. Did you notice in the story that these seasoned fishermen and sailors, they're terrified. The storm is significant. They are terrified they're going to drown. Now, interesting, the Sea of Galilee is a very interesting body of water. It's surrounded by mountains, and in the southern region, there's a gap in the mountains, and winds just whip up that little gap, and it creates lots of storms. If you sail or you're a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, you're used to storms. They're routine. So this storm must be significant. This must have been one for the ages for these veterans of the water to fear for their lives. And so they wake up Jesus. Don't you care? Don't you care? We're going to drown. And I love his response. He stands up after he wakes them and he says, shut up. <laughs> be quiet. 
Or if you have an older version of scripture, it's more pious. It's more, more pristine. It's peace be still. But the original language, it actually lends more to an abrupt shut up to the winds and the waves. And he goes on to say, not just shut up, shut up and stay shut up. Be still and be quiet. Be quiet be, and be still. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus stands up at the stern of this boat and he doesn't even lift the pinky finger of his power. This is nothing to him, guys. He's not conjuring. He's not rolling up his sleeves. He's not saying, guys, wait till you see this happen. No, he gets up and he says, shut up to the winds and the waves. He says two things and two things happen because when Jesus speaks, something always happens. He says, be quiet, be still. And the wind dies down and it says it became completely calm. Now, that word makes us think all kinds of things. But the actual original language means the, the sea became as smooth as glass. See, this was not something that happened over a period of time, that Jesus got up and said, shut up. And over time, they held onto the gunnels of the boat. And after a while, it stopped rocking. And about 10 minutes later, 15 minutes, the storm was over. I mean, that'd be miraculous enough. No, what the text is telling us is Jesus said, shut up and boom, it's glass. The wind is gone. What we see here is matchless power. There's no question of who's in power in this moment. He doesn't even have a, a wrestling match here. And sometimes when we think of good and evil, we think the big wrestling match, maybe in our lives, not with Jesus. There's no sparring partner that can get in the ring with Jesus and somehow mix it up. It's not even an effort for him. This is matchless power, unparalleled power, supernatural divine power in the person of Jesus. Now, when you're around power like that, the character of that person matters. If you have power, your character matters. People in power have great potential for good and great potential for harm. Do they not? If your character isn't stronger than the amount of your power, you will be dangerous to, to yourself and to people around you. Or in other words, you know, I think I love the words of the uncle of the great superhero Spider-Man who said, with great power comes great responsibility. Thank you, Uncle Ben. <laughs> Parents, I think I'm speaking to a number of you in this room. You have a sobering amount of responsibility. You have incredible influence and power to shape a life. I think as a father, that's one of the most sobering things I've ever carried in this life, is to realize my words weigh heavy. Even in adulthood, they weigh heavy. We have incredible responsibility. If you're over people, if you're a teacher, if you're a boss or a manager, you bear a lot of responsibility because you have the power to shape someone's future too. If, if you're a pastor, a preacher, a spiritual leader, you bear a lot of responsibility because scripture would even say you'll give even a high, you'll be held to an even higher standard on how you led and how you taught. It's very sobering. If you're a spouse or your partner, it's an incredible responsibility. There are few relationships in life where someone can so no one can hurt you more or help you more. 
than your partner or spouse in life. That intimate vulnerability means they have a power to destroy someone or to build someone up. Wield that power carefully. Wield it like Jesus does. Wield it in a way that you serve. See, how did Jesus use this power? He had all this power. It could have destroyed him. It could have hurt others. How was he able to do it in a way that he didn't harm him and didn't harm those around him? Though the key to understanding it is that word way. Jesus had a way about him. In fact, in John chapter 14, he would say this, I am the way, you can probably finish it, many of you in this room, the truth and the life. There's an order, Jesus says. The Jesus way is connected to the Jesus truth, and that brings about the Jesus life. You need both the way and the truth to have the Jesus sort of life that we claim to have. Now, here's the problem with that. I think a lot of the abuses and misuses in church and by Christians is because we mess up the order. We're so busy getting to the Jesus truth, we'll walk around the way. We're more focused on the truth, but Jesus reminds us there's an order. The way, the truth, and then the life. See, in other words, how we accomplish something is as important as what we accomplish. How we live something is as important as what we claim to live. You cannot skip the way in the hurry to get to the truth. So when it comes to power, we need to remember, power is not the problem here. Everyone in this room, everyone online, we all have different amounts of power, and probably it's situationally driven. There are power imbalances in every place in life. In your home, there is a power imbalance. There are some people that have more power than others. In, at work, there are power imbalances. Can I get an amen? There are some that are more powerful than others. In this church, there are power imbalances. Power imbalances exist everywhere. That's not the problem. You need to acknowledge those power imbalances, though. And you need to understand that if you're the one with the power, you have a greater responsibility. You have a greater responsibility. I think humanity, I think one of the ways you acknowledge it is you need to acknowledge that humanity has a proclivity of misusing and abusing power. We just do. Power corrupts us so easily, doesn't it? Power twists things. Why? Because we value ends over means. We do. Humans, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches us that we are more ends people. We value results. We value destinations. We value trophies over the process. We just do. And there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated, the book of Proverbs. It's a wisdom book, and it tells you how many people value the ends more than the means. But God values both. And God values the means. How the way you do something matters as much as what you're doing. That's why as a community, as a church community, we are not just a proclamation community. We are a practice community. Because to divorce them from each other is dangerous. It's, you know, a lot of religion is just that, isn't it? A lot of speak, not much walk. A lot of talk, not much walk. There are many people that I've met over 31 years of pastoring that have struggled to take a faith a step like the people who are baptized did today because they've known people who claim to follow Jesus, who've said all kinds of truth, but didn't walk it out in their own life. Now, Jesus said, no, 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 the walk matters. The way matters. The right way to use power 
is the Jesus way. So how did Jesus use his power? He was tempted just like Caiaphas, just like Herod, just like us, to use his power in wrong ways. He was tempted that way. Now, it's interesting. There's a beautiful account in the Gospels of how he was tempted to use his power the wrong way. And in it, what's fascinating when you read it is he's not tempted to do something bad. He's not tempted to murder someone. He's not tempted to break one of the Ten Commandments. He's tempted to do a good thing the wrong way. How is he tempted? Well, the first temptation comes when Satan comes to him and tempts him to use his power for his own benefit, for his own gain. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. And the enemy comes when he's exhausted and hungry and says, hey, turn these stones into bread. Eat something, Jesus. You deserve it. Use your power for you. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus never does this. He never uses his power to serve himself. He only uses power to elevate others. If you're new to church, read the Gospels. You owe it to yourself. There's no one like him. Every room Jesus walked in, he saw the marginalized, the oppressed, those who are powerless. And what does he do? He gives them his power. He elevates them. He is different than Herod, power over people. He's different than Caiaphas, manipulating people. Jesus comes under people and elevates people. He uses his power to serve others. Now, if you're in leadership, this is very tempting to use it for your own benefit. It's so tempting in leadership to use your position, your power, your title to take care of yourself. Here's how it usually happens. It usually comes after a season where you're exhausted or you're worn out. And there's a little whisper that says, yeah, you deserve this. You give so much away. You do so much for others. You deserve this. Friends, it's a trap. It's a trap. What does the enemy want you to do? He wants you to take the wheel, get in God's seat, and be your own provider. Why? Because you're able to. You got the power now. Resist it. If God's giving you power, use it to serve. Give it away. Serve and elevate others around you. Why can you do that? Because you trust, if you're a follower of Jesus, you trust his words when he said, if you'll seek my kingdom and my righteousness, my right way of doing things, I'll add what you need. I got you. I got your back. I'll take care of you. Don't attempt to be me for you. Let me be your God and provider. The second temptation he faced is Satan takes him to, on top of the temple and says, jump off. Jump off, and nothing's going to happen to you. And all these people, it's going to be a spectacular moment. All these people are going to come to you. In other words, use your power to get noticed. And we live in a world just like that right now. Use your power to get more followers. That's a great temptation, isn't it? To use your power. It could be your beauty. It could be your money. It could be your power, your influence, to get noticed. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But if you make them your focal point, if you make them your foundational point, if, if you just leverage them all to get noticed, remember, all those things will fade away. Everyone in power will be out of power someday. Everyone is beautiful. Time takes care of that. Evidence right here. Although I don't think it was ever beautiful, but I, I had hair once, guys. I had hair once. Here's the thing, though. If you leverage your power to get noticed, you'll find yourself surrounded by people who want what you can give, not who you are. 
you'll create an entourage of consumers in your life. I, it is sad to see people who are so lonely because they've got lots of people around them. They're in marriages, they're in friendships, they're with groups, and they know people are only there because they're giving them something. Not for who they are. It resists us, friends. Who you are is always more important than what you do. Who you are is always more important than what you can give. Find people that are loyal to that. Don't leverage your power to get noticed. Instead, use your power to elevate others. Then the third thing, the enemy comes and tempts him, and we talked about this in week one. He, he brought him to a high place where he could see all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan says, listen, I'll give you all of this. You can have all of this. Jesus is tempted to get a win without a loss, to get a trophy with no sacrifice, to get results with no cost to himself. Satan says, you can have it all. Now, to be clear, this is Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal is to rule and reign the entire earth. He's come back to redeem his creation, create a new heaven and a new earth, which he will someday, and to rule and reign with it benevolently, to bring in his just and gracious and kind and loving reign for his people. But Satan says, you can have the kingly throne without the criminal crucifixion. You can have the win with no losses. Resist us, friends. It's a trap. It is a trap every time. Shortcuts, cutting the line, that's what it is. When you got power, you don't have to wait in line like the rest of the people. You can cut the line, right? And be, resist that temptation because here's what happens in life when you keep cutting the line. I, I, I love, I've always loved the lyrics by the Canadian recording artist Lights. She always said this, nothing gives easy, easy gives nothing. Your character is created through the struggle. It's through the sweat. It's through the sacrifice that your character is grown. When you cut the line, when you take shortcuts in life, all it does is diminish your character, compromise or corrupt your character, and eventually you become what you thought you'd never be. Someone who abuses their power. Someone who misuses their power. Jesus refuses to even do a good thing a wrong way. I mean, you do the math sometimes. Have you never been there? Were you doing the math? Like, you know, this is a really good thing. I could get this done. I could take this little shortcut. It wouldn't cost me nearly as much. You know what it's like when people get too much too soon, too quickly, too easily? And all of a sudden, their lives are a disaster. It begins to flow out everywhere. Why? Because there's a way. There's a way. Jesus refuses. It, listen, if you wield power, do it the Jesus way. After all, Jesus is the way we come to God, and Jesus is the way God comes to us. It's in the person of Jesus. So I'm going to pray in just a moment, but as we land for a conclusion, I want to take you back to the water. We're back on the Sea of Galilee together. All of us are there. You need to realize that his disciples, if you read the Old Testament, maybe you've never read it, but in the Old Testament, his disciples had, and so had everyone else in the boat. The sea, the storm, the fury, the wind, the waves meant more than just the wind, the waves, and the storm. In ancient cultures and in biblical culture in the Old Testament, the storm or the sea represented an uncontrollable, chaotic, furious force. No one could control it. That's why in Revelation 21, it'll say in the new heaven and the new earth that there's no sea. 
It's not saying that there's not going to be water in the new heaven and earth, lakes and everything. It's saying there will be none of this chaos, none of this fury, none of this uncontrollability that lends to the insecurity of so many of us. We feel so insecure and vulnerable in this life because we cannot control everything in life. And God help us when we try to control it. Because we end up controlling and manipulating people just like Herod and Caiaphas to try to control outcomes instead of trusting God to be in control. So in the Bible, the sea represents chaos. And only God is the one that can bring order out of chaos. Only God is the one that can bring calmness in the middle of a furious storm. And Jesus gets up in the back of the boat. He's not saying, I have power, guys. He's saying, I am power. I am power. They know what's going on here. If you look carefully at the beginning of the story, they're scared, aren't they? Teacher, don't you care? We're going to drown. They're scared to death. They thought they were going to drown. They're scared to death. What happens after Jesus gets rid of the threat of being drowned? What happens to them when Jesus calms the winds and the waves and it's as smooth as glass? Were they happy then? No. They went from being scared to being terrified. They are terrified. They were scared before they saved them, for, before he saved them, and they're terrified after he saves them. They were scared when they faced the peril, and they were terrified when they were saved. Why? Because while the storm was blowing, they saw the great power. They felt the insecurity and fear that we've all felt in life when storms of life are just pressing in on us. And they were scared. But when Jesus said, shut up, and everything changed, they were terrified because they realized in that moment they were, in they were in the presence of an even greater power a power from another world, a power from a completely different plane. This is not a great teacher. This is God. This is God. That same power is here today. Jesus is alive. And that same power operates today. So as we move towards prayer, two thoughts, small ones. Easter should remind us of these two things. Man, if, you don't, if you've heard nothing I've said, if you leave here, if you click off the browser or you leave this place, here are these two things. If Easter tells us anything, it should remind us that Jesus cares. It should remind you that Jesus cares. I mean, look at Jesus. If Jesus would bow his head in the face of the storm of God's justice and the cross, and he wouldn't abandon you there, he's not going to abandon you in the storm you're in right now. I say, he's right in that boat with you. And when he's with you, think of the power that's with you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it says his spirit is inside of you. What are you afraid of? I mean, really, what, what are you afraid of? Not only does it remind us that Jesus cares, it reminds us that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. When you get into the storms of life, notice what he does. I, it's fascinating, the story. I almost missed it. You notice he kind of he tightens the screws on his followers a little bit. He says, the reason you're terrified was because your faith was in the wrong place. He kind of goes after them a little bit. He doesn't just say, well, you just need more faith. He says, you're believing in the wrong things. Where is your faith today, friends? 
Your faith is wherever you're building your life. Whatever you're trusting in. Yeah, it could be your money. You think that's building some level of security that'll keep you safe from everything. I've done enough funerals to know that money can't stop that. Maybe you built your, your, your faith and your trust in a career. And, and, and that's fine. I mean, maybe you love uh, your career. That's great to love your career. And when a storm comes at work, you're going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But if you built your life on your career, you're going to be devastated. It'll destroy you. I've met people decades later still rehearsing the pain of a difficult moment in their career when everything went sideways. Why? Because that was their God. That was their goal. That was their focus. That was their foundation. If you build your life on a relationship, when you have a relationship storm, it's going to hurt. But if you build it as your foundation, you're going to be devastated. And if you build your life on this life, when you get that diagnosis from the doctor, when eventually death comes knocking, you're going to be more than just hurt. You're going to be terrified. Jesus invites us to make him our foundation, our rock, our salvation. So no matter what, nothing can kill us. We can only be relocated. See, Easter is amazing. God is all-powerful. He is able to see us not through this life only, but right into the next. He loves you. He cares about you. And he's offering to save you. I'd like to pray with you. If you're online or in person in this room, I could be speaking to many different people. This may be your first time in a church. I'm glad you're here today. You may be around church. Maybe you understand enough to know when to stand and maybe sing a song. Maybe you know enough even of some of the stories in the Bible. You're going like, oh, yeah, I got that. I know that. I know where this guy's going. It's Easter. Jesus rises, right? But you know he's not your foundation. You know that when the waves come, man, you just start gripping for the things that you love most. I love the stories of the two people who were baptized today because they're two very different stories. One shaped by life experiences, a hopelessness, and they leaned into the person of Jesus and found life. The other, who went at it more from approach that this was logical and right, and it's made such a difference in her life. As special as those two people are, that could be any one of our stories. When you place your trust in Jesus, you find someone who meets you exactly where you're at, and you find a hope. It's not a hope just in a, it's not a hope in a church, it's not a hope in a pastor or a preacher or something. It's a hope in the power of the resurrection. It's a hope in our Savior, Jesus. So if you want to pray with me, I'd invite you, if you want to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus, I come to you today in the boat of my own life. And I acknowledge I am powerless against the storms that come at me in this life. I have seasons where I think, oh, I can do it. I've got this one. But I acknowledge in the face of death and everything ahead of God, I don't have an answer for those things, but you do. I bow my head to you today. 
I ask you to forgive me because I've misused my power. I've done things that have hurt people. I've done things that I'm sure have put a barrier between you and me. Thank you, Jesus, for being the way I can come to God. And thank you, Jesus, for being the way that God came to us. I place my faith in you. I place my trust in you. I make you my rock, my foundation. Fill me with your same, that same spirit that raised you from the grave. Would you fill me with your spirit? Come alongside of me. I want you for who you are, not just what you do, but God, I acknowledge I need what you do because you save. Would you rescue me? Would you show you care for me? Would you love me? Help me to follow you now all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus, amen. He is risen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.